you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. If my calculations are correct, this is the 100th episode of the Biblical Counseling Today podcast. Wow, that's a lot of talking. Thank you to all my faithful listeners out there, as well as those who have popped in once in a while. I guess I should do something special for my 100th episode. I could jazz things up a bit and interview someone about an important biblical counseling topic. But I'm the sort of guy that likes routine. As much as I'm all about biblical change as a counselor, I don't like to change things that seem to be working well. So probably to no one's surprise, at least those who know me, I'm going to soldier on with another episode on all things culture. And in that way, start working on my next hundred episodes, Lord willing. If you think about it, much of what we react against in various culture wars is immoral. We believe homosexuality is a sin and thereby immoral. We believe choosing to transition to a gender of your choice is also sinful. The entertainment culture is filled with depictions and stories that are immoral. Really, we sum up the entire worldly culture as consisting of things that are opposed to Christian morality. So if it is one thing that we long for in our world, it is people who operate by standards of morality. We want our neighbors to be moral, not some drug-dealing party animals. We want our family members to be moral so we can enjoy holidays without the drama. We want our leaders to be moral so we don't have to be treated to a scandal everywhere we turn. But when does seeking to be moral, to have a society that lives by a moral code, when does this become moralism? Well, this is the focus of today's All Things Culture podcast, the temptation of Christians to embrace and live out a moralistic culture, to confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ with being simply a good moral person. I know some of you are thinking, why spend your 100th episode on this topic? Is having a moralistic culture really that bad? We need to turn back the clock on this immoral culture and return to the moral world of Father Knows Best and leave it to Beaver. Actually, those past periods of American culture probably weren't as moral as you remember them or have heard about them. But I digress. Hang with me today in this 100th episode of Biblical Counseling Today as we attempt to think deeply about the very real danger of adopting a culture of moralism and the impact it has in our Christian homes and churches. Let's begin with a good definition of morality. Morality is concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior, the goodness or badness of human character. A moral person conforms to the standards of what is right and wrong. He or she is a person of virtue, righteous, and good. The Bible, at least the ESV translation, employs the word morals only once. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That is so true, isn't it? A moral person can quickly depart from morality when hanging out with an immoral group of people. But just because the word moral is used only once in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible isn't filled with morality. Obviously, the entire Bible is an extensive teaching on what is right and wrong, good and evil, the way to live as a Christian versus life as a pagan. Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the very beginning, human beings have been created to be moral beings. Sadly, as we are born sinners, we are also quite capable of radically immoral behavior. So that gives us some definitional structure to work with today. Morality is a good thing. People should be moral. And yet moralism is very dangerous indeed. So let's begin talking about the characteristics of moralism. First, moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Christianity then becomes all about being good people, nice people, helpful people, loving people. Little, if anything, is said about our inability to be righteous. Far too many sermons have been preached in churches only focused on moral improvement. People are often given the message that what God desires for them and demands of them is to get their life straight, to clean up their act, to be better versions of themselves, as we say today. Instead of teaching people that they are sinners who need the grace of God for salvation as well as for sanctification, moralism teaches them that they are just good people who are just doing things wrong and need to get better. Then our second principle we are moralists by birth and often by our child rearing as well. Since we've been created in God's image, we have capacity to be moral at some level. We have a conscience that speaks to us about right and wrong. We can feel guilty and be ashamed of our behavior. On top of that, our human pride can kick in, producing self-righteousness. From early on, we can see ourselves as better than others, as in the right when others are in the wrong. Add to this the reality that most parenting is often pretty moralistic. From early on, we learn that our parents are very concerned about our behavior. They have rules and expectations. They get angry when we do something wrong and are happy when we do things right. Badly behaved children get spanked, disciplined, grounded, punished. Authority figures disapprove of them, calling them bad children. Well-behaved children get rewarded with approval and acceptance, gold stars and glowing praise, maybe even gifts. So it is reinforced all through our childhood and our culture that we are to be good. We can be good if we just try hard enough. Then our third point, we can believe we can be moral all on our own. This is the true power behind moralism. We are easily convinced as people that we can be good. We can get the approval of God and other people by being as good as possible. 
we can follow the moral code. Of course, in order to really believe this, we have to adjust the Bible's moral code. Do you remember the rich young ruler that met Jesus in Mark 10? He asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. The question itself reflected his moralism. After Jesus told him that he knew the commandments, the rich young ruler confidently said that he had kept all the commands from his youth. Was this man really sinless? Of course not. But he had come to believe he was good enough to get eternal life. Until Jesus went after his heart and told him to sell his possessions and follow him. Most moralists don't claim to be sinless, but they do claim to not be committing the really big sins, or even the medium-sized ones. Again, when we accept the culture of moralism, we have to design our own moral code that looks sort of like what the Bible teaches, but not really, because it has to be easier than the Bible, so we can believe that we can actually do it. At the heart of the moralist is that can-do spirit. I can be good. Why aren't others? Which leads to the next aspect of moralism. Moralists are highly judgmental of others. When we are tempted to be moralistic, we can become like what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7. There he speaks of people who are constantly seeing the speck in other people's eyes, but can't recognize the log in their own eyes. It is just too easy to see other people's sins, to hold them to higher standards than you even hold yourself. Oftentimes, the moralist is the victim of everyone else, but has little understanding of what he or she does to others. The moralist also has high expectations of performance with very little mercy or grace. Again, the thinking is, if I feel like I can follow the rules, why wouldn't I expect everyone else to be able to do this as well. If the moralist is hard on self, then he or she is doubly hard on others. This leads to many disappointments with other people, many frustrations. The concept of grace is reduced to Peter's view. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive? Isn't seven times enough? The sins of others become so big like what the unforgiving servant felt about his friend's small debt. He forgot how much he had been forgiven. The moralistic worldview believes that if everyone just did the right thing, then the world would be a great place. Of course, there's truth in that, but it lacks the reality of life in a fallen world. And then fifth, we are often taught the Bible in a moralistic way. Moralists often see the Bible as just a rule book for human behavior. It is taught as simply moral instruction when it is far more than that. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, I see this in so many Bible storybooks for children as well as children's Sunday school curriculum. Even the lessons have moralistic titles such as Brave Little Esther. I didn't know she was such a small person or be courageous like Daniel, or have a heart like David. When we teach the Bible with a Bible character at the center of it, we almost always end up in moralism and behavior change. 
It looks at people in Scripture as simply good or bad. Then we are told to emulate the good people and not be like the bad people. Even adults can read and study the Bible in a moralistic way, looking for verses that will help them be better people. Is the Bible filled with instruction on how to live the Christian life? Certainly. But these instructions are put in the context of grace and faith and the work of the Spirit and so on. We'll talk about this a bit later. The bottom line is that moralism diagnoses our problems as human beings as simply behavioral or circumstantial. Moralism never goes to the heart of the matter. So it only ends up prescribing a solution that is a change of behavior or a change of circumstances. And in that way, denies our need for a savior. The culture of moralism is most dangerous to our souls because it is a false gospel. It sneaks up on us because it seems to be the antidote to immorality. After all, Hollywood isn't calling us to lead moral lives, right? So we can slip so easily from seeking to live morally to being moralistic in our thinking. I really believe all Christians need to do battle against moralism regularly. Thankfully, God's Word gives us plenty of ammunition to fire at the idol of moralism. So let's break down a battle plan to defeat moralism rather than absorb it into our hearts and minds as well as into our homes. First, call sin what it is, sin. I have talked many times in these 100 podcast episodes about how much people avoid calling things sin even Christians. People don't like calling worry and anxiety sin. They would rather see it as something normal we all do when there is something to worry about. We are under great pressure not to call homosexuality sin. Even among Christians, we can call the actions sin, but not the desires sinful, since they can't help those. We ignore other sins in the church, like gossip and lying, especially those small white lies, and gluttony, etc., when Scripture calls those sins as well. Decades of a moralistic culture pressures us to see people as simply weak, not sinful, misguided, not evil, needing education, not salvation. So, of course, we can be easy on ourselves and not think of our sinful behavior as sin, or not very bad sin, at least. Hitler was evil. I'm not that bad. This is the root starting place of the moralistic heart. I am not nearly as bad as other people. I'm a pretty good person, actually. It reminds me of how many times a parent is talking about the bad behavior of their child, only to add, but you know, he's really a good kid. When we don't call sin, sin, we end up believing in the goodness of humanity. We start to believe with proper direction, everyone can get better and we can have a perfect world. This is not how the Bible portrays sin at all. It is not just bad behavior. It is rebellion against God. It comes from the love of self instead of the love for God and our neighbor. It is following the way of Satan and darkness instead of God and light. 
All sin is destructive and powerful in its effects, even those little sins we hold on to. Only when we see sin for what it is will we be able to confess our sin, turn from our sin, and turn to God, all by his grace at work in our lives. Secondly, we need to recognize the holiness of God. One of the first Bible studies I attended when Marty and I were about to join our first Presbyterian church nearly 29 years ago was called The Holiness of God by the late R.C. Sproul. Weeks and weeks studying the holiness of God. It was so formative to my understanding of God and myself. The culture of moralism not only makes people better than they are, it doesn't truly grasp the immense holiness of God. One place our lack of understanding the holiness of God comes out is when we study the Old Testament. I hear people disliking the Old Testament stories because God seems so angry and mean and vengeful. They like Jesus better in the New Testament because he's so kind and helpful and merciful and gentle. When we don't understand why God is righteously angry over sin, because sin isn't really that bad, then God will seem to be just vengeful and mean. But when we see the beauty of his holiness, when we see all his majesty and perfections, then his wrath against the sin of mankind is totally understood. Then we realize how much we deserve that wrath and how we have no hope to stand up to a holy God. We cannot be totally moral because we are not God. God does not have to change. God has always been completely holy and set apart from everything else. Moralism gives us a God who is too small, whom we can earn his love and respect. We need the true God who is immense and holy, but chooses to condescend to his people through his gracious gift of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the third principle, understand the place and purpose of the law. Because we have a holy God, his law is also holy. It is perfect and thereby it is unachievable. But that doesn't mean it is unimportant. In Galatians 2.16, we read these words. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one is in right standing with God through obeying the law, through being a good person, through changing their behavior. We are actually sinning when we misrepresent the gospel by suggesting that what God demands is simple moral improvement in accordance with his law. The law cannot save. It can only show us how much we need to be saved. It is our tutor that shows us our need for Christ. We are justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, redeemed from our sin by Christ alone. The best that moralism can produce is sinners who are potentially better behaved. Again, Paul writes in Galatians 3.24 that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, we do have to remind ourselves that battling against moralism can lead us to go to the other sinful extreme of antinomianism and lawlessness. 
Just because the law doesn't save doesn't mean we are free to disobey God's laws. Christians are called to live moral lives, righteous lives, following God's moral law. But we do that from a heart of faith, recognizing our need for grace and for the power of the Spirit. The moralist obeys in his own strength and is quite proud of himself. The Christian stays in step with the Spirit, obeys God because of Christ's work in him, is sanctified by the Spirit, and knows it is all God's grace. And then next, we resist moralism by understanding biblical change. We biblical counselors are all about people making biblical change. But even we can slide into moralism if we are just focused on behavior change and nothing else, or behavior change for the wrong reasons. Here are a few examples. The moralist says that we need to love ourselves before we can truly love others. If you don't take care of you and be a better person, how can you love anyone else? The gospel says that we already love ourselves well. We love God because he first loved us. We love others because of the love of God poured out in our hearts. When we don't love others, it is typically because we are focused on loving self. All right, here's another one. The moralist says, don't be angry when people attack you or abuse you because you are better than that. You should love them back to show them what's right. The gospel says, don't be angry when people attack you or abuse you because your ultimate sense of approval comes from God. Because of that, it doesn't matter what people think of you or do to you because God is the one who avenges. Then you become free to love others, even those who don't deserve it, even your enemies. In this way, you show forth the love of Christ. Do you hear the difference? Okay, one more. The moralist says, be humble because it's the right thing to do. It blesses others. And God says he opposes the proud. So here are five ways to become more humble. The gospel says, be humble because in light of God's holiness, you have absolutely nothing to boast in. Your best morality is filthy rags stained with sin. Your greatest talents are gifts from God. You are just as sinful as everyone else, equally needing a Savior. So be humble and boast in the Lord. Are you starting to see how vital it is that we properly understand what biblical change is? It keeps us from simply cleaning up the external and having real change of heart and mind. Then fifth, we need to battle our tendency towards moralistic parenting. As I've already mentioned, we grow up thinking in moralistic terms, which fits our sinful hearts. We are rewarded for doing good and we are punished for doing badly. In school, we have teachers trained to do behavior modification, giving out gold stars or sending children home on red instead of on green. Now, don't get me wrong. Classrooms need to have rules and discipline. Our homes need to have rules and discipline. Fighting against a culture of moralism doesn't mean we get rid of all morality. It is first and primarily about how we communicate with our children in order to not lead them to become little moralists. Remember, we always call sin, sin. And we talk about how they are sinners from birth. And so they will sin. 
And without Christ, they will keep on sinning with no hope of real change. So when your children say to you, I can't do it, I can't change, I can't stop lying, or whatever, our natural tendency is to say, yes, you can. You just need to stop. You need to always tell the truth. Instead, you should communicate this way. You are right. You can't change on your own. That's why you need Jesus. You need him to change your heart. He is the truth. And so you need to believe and trust in him as truth. Only then will you be a better truth teller. But you will be tempted to lie to protect self all the time. Or when a young child does something wrong, our natural impulse is to say something like this. Never do that again. Or even worse, I better never catch you doing that again. That was always my favorite. I just resolved to never get caught again. I was following my dad's instruction. I wanted to get better at sneaky sinning. Instead, parents, this should be our message. What you did was wrong against God's commands. Since you're a sinner, you will be tempted to do that again, and you will sin again. But you know what? Mom and dad will be there to correct you and discipline you and remind you of what God requires. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin and give you strength to change. It's hard to change how we communicate in our parenting since we are so bent to moralism naturally. If we are honest as parents, sometimes all we want is a well-behaved child rather than a biblically changed child. We just want some peace and quiet. But of course, our greatest desire is to see our children saved by the grace of God and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to help keep the culture of moralism out of our family life. We need to teach the gospel of grace and not the false gospel of moralism. So the antidote to a moralistic culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moralism offers good advice. The gospel offers the good news. To battle moralism, we must teach God's word. We must teach all of God's word, and we must teach it in a Christ-centered, gospel-driven way. So let me end with some principles of both studying God's word for ourselves as well as teaching God's word to our children and other people in order to battle this moralistic culture. First, When we are studying or teaching the stories of the Bible, always remember that God is the main character. He is the focus of the story, not the human character. Even in the book of Esther, where God's name doesn't even appear, he is still what the story is all about. Not brave little Esther, who wasn't really brave at all. Second, accordingly, we need to not see Bible characters as superhuman. Thankfully, the Bible shows them as sinners who need grace and mercy if we're paying attention. These are real people in real history who show us ourselves, our sin, our weakness, our need for Christ. And then third principle, every story of Scripture points to Jesus if we really understand the story. Some are more obvious than others, like Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac. Instead of just highlighting Abraham's obedience, focus on Isaac's and Abraham's need for a sacrifice. We are shown Jesus in all the stories of Scripture, not just in the Gospels. 
Fourth, when we are studying direct moral instruction in Scripture, put it in context of the gospel. For example, before Paul issues a moral command in his letters, he typically starts with what God has done by his grace in our hearts. In other words, there is usually an indicative, what we are in Christ, before an imperative, what we must then do. Remember that we're only able to obey because of Christ's work in us, and that our moral righteousness comes because we are clothed in his righteousness. And then finally, we remember that the Bible is actually just one story, one story of our sin, one story of our redemption in Jesus Christ, one story of the hope that is only found in him. We mustn't ever read the Bible as just a bunch of interesting stories or as simply a guide to know how to live a blessed life. In Scripture, we are always confronted with our need for redemption and the fact that God sent us a Redeemer. So always be conscious of your proclivity to give in to a culture of moralism. One indicator that you're being too moralistic is if you find yourself angry, bitter, and joyless most of the time. Remember that the moralist expects others to be moral too. So he or she is always regularly frustrated and lacking much joy and peace. As much as all of us want to see less immorality in the culture, this should point our hearts to the hope that we have in heaven. We cannot create a moral culture here on earth. But in heaven, there will only be the purity and righteousness of Christ shining all around us. We will enjoy glorified bodies and no presence of sin for eternity. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.